this view is just ridiculous. Right? So nice. I know. I know. I could just come here, hang out. I'm coming here every year, I think. My producers and I are at Santa Anita Racetrack in Arcadia, California, one of the most storied racetracks in America. We're here on the holiest of Saturdays, the Breeders' Cup, which is essentially horse racing's world championship. While most Americans are pretty well familiar with the winners of the Kentucky Derby, the horses in the Breeders' Cup come from all over the world, and they're often older, faster, and stronger than most of the three-year-olds that compete in the Kentucky Derby each year. It's like the difference between the NCAA championship and the NBA Finals. The Breeders' Cup is 14 races run over the course of two days for $30 million in purse money. The weekend attracts the top racehorses, jockeys, and trainers from around the world. Naturally, it also attracts the top gamblers. Right. I think that's why a lot, you know, with the Derby, with the Breeders' Cup, why a lot of the um, quote-unquote, you know, professional or like expert-type players want to get in on these days because there is more, you know, public money or dumb money bet into the pools. Uh, dead money. Yeah, dead Square. Money. Right. Yeah. That's Emily Gullickson, and she is most certainly not dead money. Threes, threes on the front. That's one of ours. What's nine's name? Oh yeah, we got one. Spice three Perfection. Yeah. One, one, three, nine. One, three, nine. They're, they're clustering up a little. Yeah, walk us through this. I can't see. Really? I mean, I could just see like shapes. Um, two is the lead, a big bomb. Both the two and the three are dueling for the lead. Number one, Kofefe has been stalking inside. She's inside of the number nine, Spice Perfection. Maybe your only experience with the racetrack is at your local hard scrabble race course, where a weekday card might draw four or 5,000 fans, mostly from the retiree set, chomping cigars and riding around on rascal scooters. But that's not where we are. This race is a marquee event, and the crowd is large, jubilant, and for the most part, well-dressed and mannered. The grandstands of Santa Anita look out onto the San Gabriel Mountains, about as beautiful a view as there is in all the sports. There's over 67,000 people here, and they're betting with both hands. But whether the crowd are cigar chompers or seersuckers, Emily still stands out. There just aren't very many people like her in this world. A world that's long been dominated by men that are buttoned up and straight-laced. Men that are conservative in appearance and outlook. And men that are, well, men. Be that as it may, when it comes to picking winners, Emily is undeniably one of the best. This is the story of Emily Gullickson, the renegade of American horse players. From the Ringer Podcast Network, my name is David Hill, and this is Gamblers. Gamblers is brought to you by FanDuel Sportsbook, the official sports betting partner of the Ringer Podcast Network. Looking for a better way to bet on your favorite sports online? With FanDuel Sportsbook, there are more ways to bet. If you can dream it, you can probably bet it through FanDuel Sportsbook. FanDuel offers spreads, parlays, money lines, over-under, props, and in-game bets all in an easy-to-use app. Also, there are more ways to cash out. When you win... You can receive your winnings in your bank account in as little as 48 hours through a safe and secure process. Check out FanDuel Sportsbook app today to experience sports betting the way it always should have been. FanDuel, more ways to win. 
Must be 21 plus and present in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Indiana, or Colorado. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In Indiana, call 1-800-9-WITH-IT or in Colorado, call 1-800-522-4700. Emily Gullickson is a regular competitor in the top horse race betting tournaments across the country. But there's nothing regular about her talent. She's so good that some of the best gamblers in the country have sought her advice and counsel. You guys were like a team? We were a team, then we had a fight at the NHC, and we were no longer a team. That's Alan Dinkinson, or Dink. Among sports gamblers, he's a legend. Bruce Willis played him in the 2012 movie Lay the Favorite. So you're a bookie? Absolutely not. Bookmaking is illegal. I'm a gambler. Everything I do here is completely legal in the state of Nevada. Though he's one of the most successful gamblers in America, when he competed in one of the biggest horse racing betting tournaments ever, the National Handicapping Championship, he asked Emily to be on his team. We got in. We, I, didn't, I did as much work as I could, thinking I could do it all in one night. And it took me like 40 minutes of race. And I go, oh, my God. So I did like eight races. And I showed her my work. And she was mad at me. And I go, well, you're better than me. You just do the whole thing. And... Dink wasn't the only gambler seeking Emily's advice on betting horses. She sells her insights on horse racing to some of the other top gamblers in the world through her company, Optics EQ. And she's paid by a number of racetracks in the U.S. and Canada to handicap races and share her selections with their guests. These are the top horse players in the country, many of whom consider themselves geniuses. Yet they're willing to pay Emily for her information. And that says a lot about how good she is at this game. I think Emily sells her ability short. I think she's quite the handicapper and quite the gambler. So it doesn't surprise me that she beat me. That's, that's for sure. That's Garrett Skiba, a top handicapper who's racked up more six-figure tournament caches in the last couple of years than any other player. He and Emily met after sitting next to each other during a tournament where they were competitors. Now they're friends, and he pays big money for Emily's trip notes to help him with his plays. She does a lot more race watching, you know, trip handicapping. Um, the benefit is that she works for optics, and I'm able to, you know, use some <laughs> to my advantage. And so probably handicaps her to some degree to, to kind of put all her best thoughts on paper. But uh, So what you're saying is that you utilize her handicapping data because you buy it from her. So she, the work that she's doing to handicap the races, you already have the benefit of. Right. And it just, it, I like to put as much information as I can together to formulate an opinion. And so, you know, obviously her information, is, as she watches so many races, is important to kind of the overall, you know, plays that I'm going to make in that given day. Uh-huh. So what does she need to do to get an edge on you then? She's got to stop. She's got to have some stuff she doesn't put in the. Uh, yeah, put in the... I think that would help if she if she hid some of those keynotes that uh, that I'm using to my advantage. Absolutely. Hold some stuff back, Emily. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can see where people would say that. I mean, there's there's certain things like in in optics where I'm sure some people try to get cheeky and try to beat us with their own information, but our information's good. Like they're not going to beat us in the long run. Emily's superpower is simple. She watches a stupid amount of horse races. On the track or on video replays, she spends hours watching and analyzing tape. If there's a horse running in a race somewhere right now, chances are Emily's seen that horse race before. She may have even seen all of its races. And she compiles notes on those races, information that data-driven algorithms don't have, information that requires a human eye and a human mind to assess, information that there is no shortcut to obtain. 
and information that has given her almost a sixth sense when it comes to analyzing horse races. Today at Santa Anita, Emily isn't playing in the $10,000 buy-in Breeders' Cup betting challenge with Garrett, so they don't have to worry about each other. Instead, she's putting her research and analysis to work to help me and my producers win some grocery money. And so I just want to describe what you're looking at. So you're on your iPad and you're looking at, right now you're looking at a spreadsheet, but before you were looking at a kind of a graph that had a bunch of squares. Yeah, I was looking at, I was looking at um, the optics plot, which is a, a pace tool, and it just gives me a visual for where the horses are in the race. So there's multiple points of call in the race. So the it's, first, like a, it's like a square with like an X and Y axis through the middle, and there's a bunch of circles and squares that are different colors plotted all over it. Yeah, so those are the horses that are represented by circles and squares um, in, the four, in the four quadrants. So, As you can hear, she's a huge fucking nerd. Her tablet screen looks more like a science experiment than a horse racing program. But being a huge fucking nerd isn't the only thing that distinguishes her from the rest of the gamblers you might meet at the track. How much do you, how much do you consider the horse's name? Zero. <laughs> Come on, I don't believe that for a second. For one second, never made a bet on a horse because of their name. I don't know about never, but come on, I do it all the time, all the time. A little bit, you know, make a little bet on a horse because of its name. No, I don't think I do. I mean, yeah, no, because I've seen, you know, I've seen too many Emilys or you know, I've renegade tattooed across my knuckles. I've seen like way too many named horses that, you know, can't do it. You might see a lot of horses with renegade in their names, but you don't see too many Emilys with renegade tattooed across their knuckles at the racetrack. There's only one. And she's more than just a racetrack gambler. She does roller derby. She's into CrossFit. She's got a lot more piercings than most folks at the track. She's into punk and hardcore, a straight edger who refuses to drink alcohol or touch drugs. She's someone who looks like she'd be more at home in the pit than in the paddock. Number six is dropping back. Uh, Kofefi just took Kofefi just took the lead. She's being tracked by the nine. Nine. It's the nine and the one. Oh shit! No, no six. No six. No six. No six. No six. No six. Oh fuck! Hang in there. I love horse racing. I grew up around the racetrack in Hot Springs, Arkansas. My father was a gambler, and his grandfather was a horseman. My family spent weekends at the track, as did pretty much the whole town. It was more than just a place to gamble. It was a place to see your neighbors, to unwind and enjoy yourself. Unlike most forms of gambling, where you play a game in intense silence, at the racetrack you get to watch one of the most thrilling sporting contests in the world. Athletes gripping the sides of magnificent animals as they barrel forward in a pack going as fast as an automobile. There's little in the world of gambling more fun than cheering a horse down the stretch of the racetrack. It makes even your losing bets a little more bearable, and your winning bets so much more memorable. In 1964, horse racing was the most popular sport in America. Tracks packed in record-setting crowds from coast to coast. Newspapers carried the winners of the big races on the front pages. A lot of that popularity was tied to gambling, But by the 1980s, 
Only around 4% of Americans ranked horse racing as their favorite sport. Attendance at tracks started to dry up. Just as many people were betting the horses, but technology had made it so that horse players didn't have to travel the circuit anymore. With simulcast, you could bet any track from anywhere, even at home. With fewer people going to the races, newer fans were harder to come by. And just like that, the once mighty sport of kings quickly became a niche sport associated with old people and oddballs. It was the same game it was in 1964. There were just fewer people watching from the grandstands and infields. Some people kept coming to the track anyway, because some people, like Emily's mother, recognized that the sport itself was appealing and exciting all on its own, even without gambling on it. So appealing, she would frequently take her young daughter. I was born in L.A., and then at age seven, my parents moved to Sonoma, which is a small town in the Bay Area. And I lived there up until I was 18. I never really felt at home like in Sonoma, like ever. I mean, really being anywhere, I'm kind of like a, a different kid altogether. But yeah, being in a small town, that really wasn't, wasn't for me. As a young girl, Emily only found one thing in Sonoma that she connected with. From age seven, which is when we moved there, like one of the first things that, that I did like outside of school and whatnot was... Um, take horseback riding lessons and, and work at a barn. And the first barn that I rode at, it wasn't like a fancy stable by any means. Like you had to do everything. So like at age seven, like learning how to clean tack and clean stalls and groom horses and just do everything that is required of you. All I remember was wanting to be at the barn all day long, like drop me off as soon as we wake up in the morning and don't pick me up until the sun comes down at night. And in fact, if you leave me, I'm okay with that too. Like Emily and her mom, my family never stopped going to the racetrack. For us, and a lot of other people in our town, horse racing was in our blood. Going to the track on a nice Saturday afternoon was like going to church on Sunday for most folks. Going to the Arkansas Derby was like Easter Sunday. Everyone got dressed up in their nicest clothes, and the whole damn town showed up. That's just how it was back home. The track wasn't a weird or oddball place. Or maybe it was, and I was just a weird oddball. All I know is I was a young, angsty teenager who listened to Fugazi and didn't eat meat, yet I never felt out of place at the track. It took moving to another place to realize that this part of my upbringing was considered unusual to most of the rest of the country. Emily, too, eventually got out of the sleepy town of Sonoma, and like me, she traded one unusual subculture for another. When I was like still in high school, I moved out because I was a punk rock kid and there's really no punk rock scene in the small town, especially when you have San Francisco and Berkeley and even Santa Rosa close by. So I moved out then and um, I lived in Berkeley, I lived in Oakland, I lived in San Jose. Eventually, Emily would move away from California and out to the East Coast, Washington, D.C., then Virginia for a spell, then back to California, before finally settling in Arizona in the early 2000s. She got really into skateboarding, but eventually injured herself and found her way back from injury with another sport, one that was equally bruising, but a lot more competitive, roller derby. It was tons of fun. It kind of gave uh, a little bit of an outlet, sort of in the way that like punk rock was, if, you know, especially for me that couldn't really play an instrument or something, but brought some sense of uh, community, especially for women, getting out and organizing and putting something together and being a part of something. 
Roller Derby ticked a lot of boxes for Emily. It was also going through a renaissance at that time, and Emily was able to travel and even compete on an A&E reality show. But despite all the attention Roller Derby was getting, it wasn't something she could make a living at. There wasn't any money in it. My mom came out to visit, and she said, well, why don't we go to the, why don't we go to the racetrack? We can, you know, just for something to do, right? So like, yeah, that's a good idea. Like, I haven't been since probably that time in Santa Rosa. Like, why not? So we went, she grabbed, like, a program, the racing form, and, like, one, like, look at the racing form. I was like, this is cool. Like, this handicapping, this book, like, has all this information, and there's, this isn't just, you know, looking at the horses and trying to pick a number and, or a name or something. I'm like, there's, there's something to this, right? The book Emily was looking at was the Daily Racing Form, a newspaper that publishes all of the past performance data on all the horses running in races around the country each day. She was fascinated by the pages and pages of numbers and symbols. It was like a secret code. And if she could decipher it, she could win. It kind of made sense to me like right away, and I don't know how. But it just did. Like, I, I'm like, oh, I understand, like, how this is laid out and what they're trying to do. And, you know, I just kind of, like, it made sense to me in enough intrigue that I'm like, I need to know, I need to know more about this. Like, I need to learn how to, how to really do this and, like, study it and, and understand that. But, yeah, from there, I was all in. And it was, like, not, I mean, obviously, you know, I like the horses. I enjoyed, you know, watching them run. But it was, how do you figure out who the winner is? And that's the part that got me hooked. So then from there, I went to the library, went to the bookstore, got any book that I could, read them all, and just started, like, playing every day. There are different types of gamblers. Some gamble for the rush. Others for ego. Others simply for the money. The gamblers that I relate to most, gamblers like Emily, love to play games. Learning the rules, coming up with a strategy, and putting your ideas to the test. Horse racing presents these types of gamblers with all they could ever wish for. There is a ton of data available to analyze. And because the odds aren't fixed, but fluctuate based on how everyone else bets, when you're right about something that everyone else is wrong about, you can make a pile of money. Despite what you may think from seeing the stereotypical railbird at the track, the big mouth touts, or the high rollers in fancy suits, or the old guys in their polyester shirts and blue blocker shades, those guys are all square. They're dead money. It's the true fucking nerds who hoover up all the money in this game. The ones with spreadsheets and charts and graphs and a keen sense of value and opportunity. For all the colorful characters and the weekend warriors that you meet at the track, it's the ones in the background, the ones like Emily, who are doing the work to win. But gambling is just the spectator side of horse racing. There's an actual sport with real stakes that is taking place in order for these wagers to exist. Jockeys are tremendous athletes, and thoroughbred racehorses are some of the most majestic animals on God's green earth. Watching them race can be breathtaking, even moving. And while gambling made horse racing popular, it was the remarkable athletic achievements of the sport's champions, and not the bets that were won or lost, that are etched into history and erected into statues. We remember Man of War, Secretariat, Seabiscuit, Cigar, Zenyatta, American Pharaoh. We don't remember what they paid to win. Like a lot of sports, this one has a dark side. It's often overlooked, but most jockeys are paid a penance, and they're some of the most seriously injured athletes in professional sports, 
destroying their bodies to make weight, and sometimes falling and getting trampled by horses. Horses die on the racetrack, and at the margins of the sport, horses are sometimes retired to live in squalor, or worse. And for a former vegan straight-edge punk kid like Emily, who was getting into gambling on horse racing and thinking of it as a potential career, these were difficult facts to wrestle with. In the end, her love of animals drew her closer to the sport rather than pushed her away. You can't be in the sport and not care about the horses. I mean, everybody that's in it cares about the horses. That's why you're here in the first place, right? You could be doing any job anywhere, you know, for more money and better hours than than working in the industry. You're there because you really, really enjoy being around the horses. For anybody, I mean, even people that are animal activists right now and trying to shut down horse racing, I think they're coming at it from good faith. They want the horses to be treated well. Horse racing has for years now battled this image of being a sport where horses are used and abused, all for the financial gain of cruel and greedy owners and the entertainment of degenerate bettors. Some of it's well-deserved. But what the public often fails to understand is that this sport, like any sport, spans a very broad spectrum of participation. There are minor and major leagues. Your local racetrack may have horses running this week that are racing for a purse of a few thousand dollars. Horses that may have cost not much more than that to purchase. Horses that are not good enough to compete at the highest levels and are being raced by lunch pail trainers to eke out a modest living. Some of those trainers and owners still manage to care for their horses as if they were their pets, and they take financial losses in order to care for them both while they race and after they retire. But others don't. They cut corners, wash their hands of the animals when they can no longer earn money for them. But in a sport that revolves around animals, animal welfare is an important and central issue. And horse players like Emily, who care deeply about the horses and the people who work with them, are more common than not. I think if you ask people just general stuff, like, you know, how often does a, a racehorse race? I'll be like, oh, they'll race them, you know, five times a day or something like that. And it's like, no, a horse is going to race like maybe a mile, usually less than a mile, you know, once a month. The rest of the time, you know, they're going to get a little bit of exercise. They're going to get a lot of baths. They're going to get a lot of food. They're going to get a lot of sleeping. You know, they're going to get a lot of care. Um, you know, the racing part of it is is so small compared to their lifespan on the track. They spend so much other time being a pet, really, having kind of a, a pet, an athletic pet life, you know, politically, I think the overall like revolution would include animal liberation, but we're, we're far from that at this point. Here at the Breeders' Cup, the sport's highest echelon of competition, the horses that are competing cost their owners millions of dollars, and some may never earn back that investment. The horses are flown in and out of Santa Anita in private planes, to and from barns and balmy climates like Florida, where they're pampered to excess and protected from injury and anxiety at all costs. This is the sport's major league. It's NFL. Looking around the owner's boxes at these assorted noblemen and titans of industry, it's clear that they live in a different world than I do. So too do their animals. In the world of horses, just like the world of humans, the wealthiest get whatever they need and more. So nine would just be the most Let's ideal. Let's get down. Right yeah, oh, nine would be the best. So we're alive on two tickets. <laughs> because if nine wins, we automatically win the next one since we have them all. And then it will come down to... Uh, <laughs> in the last, in the last I think for my future well-being, I should lose. <laughs> no, 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 no. 
More after this. Add a little excitement to your sports watching experience by betting on all the action on FanDuel Sportsbook this football season. There's a reason why FanDuel is America's number one sportsbook. Their app is simple to use, they've got great odds on all different betting markets, unique, fun betting types like Same Game Parlay, and exclusive always-on promotions to let you get more action out of every game day. And if you win, they even get you your winnings safely in as little as 24 hours. Right now, FanDuel is letting you place your first bet risk-free up to $1,000. Just place a bet on any game, and FanDuel will refund you up to $1,000 back if you don't win your first bet. Seriously, there's no strings attached. Just place any bet you want. If you win, you keep the cash. If you lose, you'll get your entire bet up to $1,000 back in site credit. Now, I've lost enough betting on the Arkansas Razorbacks this year, and that loss to LSU was almost the last straw. But I think I figured out a way to win money betting on Arkansas on FanDuel, and that's betting on the basketball team. FanDuel has futures on who will win the NCAA championship and who will win the conference titles, and I think I'll take a flyer and bet on the Hogs to win the SEC, but in a sport where they're actually not terrible. Also, don't forget to check out FanDuel's same-game parlays as well. If you've never tried FanDuel Sportsbook, what are you waiting for? Download the FanDuel Sportsbook app to get started, and be sure to sign up with promo code GAMBLERS so they know I sent you. That's FanDuel Sportsbook promo code GAMBLERS. Must be 21 plus and present in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Illinois, West Virginia, Indiana, Colorado, Iowa, Tennessee. First online real money wager only. Site credit is non-withdrawable and expires in 14 days. Restrictions apply. See sportsbook.fanduel.com for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-522-4700 in Colorado, 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa, 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-GAMBLER in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Illinois, Tennessee Redline 1-800-889-9789 or visit www.1800gambler.net in West Virginia. Around the time that Emily started studying up on how to handicap horse races, a new way to bet on them was growing in popularity. Online handicapping tournaments. These were contests where players ponied up an entry fee and tried to pick more winners than the other players to win the pot. It was a lot like daily fantasy sports, a low-risk, high-reward way to practice picking winners. That's kind of one of the ways that I, I learned how to play, and then I got a lot of practice from, from playing tournaments because I would just play five to 10 tournaments a day at any racetrack that would run. So anywhere from Belmont, Del Mar, Parks, Portland, like it didn't matter. I handicapped them all. You went from like never having gone to the races to like thinking about and working on this stuff every day? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, that was, uh, <laughs> yeah. Every aspect from handicapping, um, look at the workouts every day, just, you know, how fast horses were running for that day, charting them, looking for, you know, different things. Yeah, just learning the game. This is where Emily developed her superpower, an almost endless supply of patience and attention. She was going to get better by putting in the work. It didn't take Emily long before she wondered whether or not horse racing might be her future. At that point, she was back in college, and she was working part-time in addition to all the work she put in gambling on horses. She couldn't keep it all up. Something had to go. 
Well, yeah, I think everybody that starts playing and like hits their first like bet is like, oh yeah, I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. This is easy. This is a piece of cake. And then all of a sudden variance kicks in. You're like, well, maybe I should like keep my job and like just see how this goes a little bit. Variance is a cruel mistress. Even though she knew she could continue to make more at gambling than she did at her day job, she also knew that she might not. And while playing the ponies for a living full-time appealed to Emily, it was a tough sell to her family and those around her. As you might expect, unless you work on Wall Street, it's difficult to explain to civilians how you can make a living by gambling. The stability aspect of it is difficult. I mean, on you know, gambling, there's addiction things that go along with it. So I think that's probably like the first thing that people kind of like be put off about, you know, when they hear the word gambling. It, people have a hard time like separating right off the bat, like gambling from addiction. I would say that's probably one of the biggest, the biggest barriers when I talk to people about like what I do is that aspect. So Emily chose to pursue a day job and build her bankroll on the side. She figured if she worked in the racing industry, she could do both at the same time do work that helped her grow her knowledge of the sport, which would in turn help her be a better horse player and gambler. One of the things that I ended up doing to kind of start my career in horse racing, even though I didn't really know that at the time, is I was really into workouts, horses working out and like reading workout reports. And and still to this day, I'm like very fascinated by that. And I still watch workouts all the time. So I had contacted one of the clockers, Bruno DiGiulio, and I said, hey, I'm interested in this. And like, would you want, you know, an apprentice? Like, I'll show up like wherever. Like, I just want to, you know, I want to learn. I want to do this. A clocker is someone who goes to the racetrack early in the morning and watches as the trainers work out their horses to prepare for races. As the name implies, a clocker times those workouts and writes up reports on how the horses perform. Sometimes the clockers work for trainers, but sometimes they work for themselves and use the information to help them handicap races and pick winners, or to sell that information to other big-time gamblers. Sort of like an NBA scout in Europe, someone with first-hand, boots-on-the-ground information nobody else has. Bruno is one of the best private clockers, and people who want to read his reports pay thousands of dollars for the privilege. Here he is talking to John Scheinman for the Pollock Report. And you got Alpha right behind him. Alpha... I got to see him the entire winter down at Palmetto's. He looks wonderful. I mean, he's, he's not, he doesn't carry that baby fat, that big barrel that he had down at uh, Florida. He looks like a horse that's actually gotten fit, grown up. He looks like a man now, and you have to be a man to win the Derby. I've got 20 years experience of watching horses train. I've seen 2 million horses train in my career. If I can't tell what a horse is supposed to look like, I shouldn't be in the business. And um, he's like, yeah, (laughs) why not? So um, I went out to Saratoga for a summer. Emily would show up every morning before dawn and watch the horses work, doing the detective work of figuring out which was which and accurately tracking and recording everything, sometimes up to 200 different horses a day. Not many people do it. I think a lot of people want to go out there and do it, but just the amount of work and then just not knowing who these horses are when they're working, it's really overwhelming. About a year into clocking for Bruno, Emily decided to strike out on her own. She went from New York to Southern California and she clocked horses at Del Mar. There she met John Doyle, who had won the National Handicapping Championship and was a successful full-time professional horse player. Funny story. So I met him at Del Mar through a mutual friend. 
So I had been, you know, clocking horses in the morning and I just met him at the paddock. Um, you know, this is my friend, Emily, and he's talking about the late pick four, putting his ticket together and he left out a horse. And, and so I said, you should take a look at this horse. Like I've, I've been watching this horse train, this horse, this horse can run, like, don't leave it out. Right. And like, me, I mean, you've met me before. I don't kind of like look like a normal race tracker type person. So it's kind of like, I kind of got the look like, okay, you know, whatever. Anyways, that horse won. He did end up putting it in his pick four and he hit the pick four. So the next day, you know, he's like, hey, like good call on that horse or whatever. So he was cool with me from then on out. That's how I met John. John was a pro. And even though he was earning his living betting on horses, it was a hard way to make an easy living. He worked his butt off. The secret to his success was an analytic tool he was developing, an early version of the weird graphs that Emily was showing us at Breeders' Cup. The tool was effective in helping him pick winners, but it required a ton of work to feed it the data that it needed. He did trip notes for every racetrack and did it on his own. And trip notes are, you know, watching the horses every time they race, making notes about them, the historical stuff from like, what did the horse race wide to... The projection stuff, is this a horse that wants to, you know, race longer, race shorter, doesn't like dirt kicked in its face, you know, all those type of variables. He's doing that on his own. And by the time he won the NHC, he's just like, that was great, but it nearly killed me. This is way too much work for one person. And this is the type of work that has to be done in order to play on the level that, that you need to play, you know, to feel like you, to win, right? John brought Emily on as a partner. And he tasked her with watching hours and hours of race footage and then breaking down what happened in each race into easy-to-understand language. The information they compiled was good, and it was going to give them a huge edge in their bets. But they asked themselves, should we hoard all this to ourselves? How much could they really make all on their own? What was a better play? Use this tool to give themselves an edge in gambling or sell this tool to the world of gamblers and give themselves some guaranteed income? When I first started playing and like hit a couple good races and like made some money and thought, oh, this is easy. Like, I'm going to totally do this. This is simple, you know, whatever. I think everybody kind of has that for a second. But by the time I really kind of started to like respect the game, understand the game, kind of see some up and downs, you know, also like things in my life, like, you know, how am I going to support myself, you know, through variance and ups and downs and things like that. Oh, yeah, we're all holding a ticket. What's the minimum? <laughs> Um, so for the pick three is a 50 cent minimum. So we're going to go back at the Breeders' Cup. We were having our own ups and downs. A day at the races, as I'm sure you can surmise, is more than just watching a single two minute horse race. There are a dozen races throughout the day, each with a long menu of betting options. So many that for the uninitiated, it can be overwhelming. So we're going to hit all. So we have all 12 horses. We're just going to kind of hope for chaos there and then get alive to the number seven cold front. So, so that's not bad. So it's a $20 bet and we're in with a shot for, you know, at least four figures. Okay. I think that's, I th that's good. Right. That's I, rent for me. Me too. So I'm good with that. <laughs> we desperately need nine. If my fiance doesn't become my wife in a year, it's because of this day, right? <laughs> Horse racing's a tough game, even when you've got as much information at your disposal as Emily. Like any other kind of gambling, there's always the element of luck, of chance, of variance. The best win a bit more than they lose. The merely good eventually go broke. 
What is your, what is your case for horse racing? If you're gamble? really, really, really good, you can make an awful lot of money with a small investment. That's Alan Denkinson again. And he's at the Breeders' Cup today because, after a lifetime of making a fortune betting on sports, he still prefers betting on horses. In sports, it's like blackjack. You just want to win 60 to 55 to 60 percent of the hands that you're dealt with a dollar ten, you know, five cent vig against you, basically. The vig is the juice, the built-in statistical edge that the house gives itself on every bet. But if you shop around and you're smart and you have an idea of who's doing what, it's almost no vig for me. Yeah. That's all I can handle. Well, what if you're like me and you're not very smart? What's the benefit to horse racing versus... Depends on which handicap you like. <laughs> I'd rather handicap horses than sports yeah, yeah. because it's complex and it's interesting and you're, you're continually looking at odds against what you make the odds. And In, in sports, you kind of do that once and you're done with it. The fact that a guy like Dink prefers betting on horses to sports says a lot about this game. It's dynamic. It's challenging. For those who put in the work, it's beatable. But most of all, it's fun. A life in and around gambling is one that is fraught. It is life on the knife's edge. There are inevitable ups and downs, highs and lows. Even when you're doing everything right. Even when you are very good at what you do. It isn't the kind of life that normal people would choose for themselves. It is the kind of life that draws a certain type of person. Someone like Emily. But Emily is so much that type of person, she doesn't even see it. To her, what she does with her life and money is no different than what going to a ball game or collecting seashells might be for you or me. It's just a thing you do for fun. It's a good challenge. It's rewarding every day. It's a purpose every day. I don't know. There's, I think you should, you know, be fine with gambling and putting your money like you would in any hobby, right? Every hobby is going to have a cost. If you enjoy snowboarding, you're going to have to buy equipment. You're going to have to buy lift tickets. You're going to have to, you know, get a car that drives you up in snow or whatever. So everything's going to come with a price attached to it. So if your hobby is horse racing, that money's going to be spent gambling, win or lose. I th we were talking about this more yesterday, and we are kind of talking about, like, what what appeals to the racetrack is like if you're going to go to like any sporting event like we just spent like 30 bucks on tickets right yeah. like what what sporting event are you going to go for like 30 bucks that's a great point you know what i mean like you're not going to go you you can't go anywhere i live in arizona we have spring training games you can't even get like bleacher seats for 30 bucks right <laughs> so we're we're in it with we could leave with more money than we came with do you think that gambling has changed the way that you make other decisions in your life or the way that you think about other things in your life or money? That's just sort of one of those things where like I've grown up with that kind of being a little bit different. The one kid in high school that has a mohawk in a town that doesn't of being a little bit different. So having, you know, 30 years of that or 25 years of that behind me helps in that aspect. But in general, I mean, I, I think it's probably, I think diversity is good. 
I'm, I guess I'm, I'm less afraid to be um, go against the grain. And I think playing horses is or gambling or anything like that is pretty open to all people, I guess, even though it kind of just draws at least the perception of a certain crowd. I think it's open for everybody. In the world of horse players, there's nobody like Emily Gullickson. This is true. But it's also true that the world of horse players is filled with people just like her. People that understand variance and risk. People who don't get caught up in short-term setbacks and live life for the long run. People who are willing to take risks in order to get what they want, whether that means a few thousand bucks or it means a life that suits them, a life that's worth living. But more than anything, people who love to be outside, in the shadow of a breathtaking mountain range, bearing witness to beautiful animals and athletes, hooting and hollering, like so many wild punks and freaks. But yeah, now that you know like how to handicap a little bit, you get to bring bring some friends and teach them. I think that's what like I mean, obviously like cashing tickets, having the winner, like that's awesome. But when you kind of come up with it is like when you like study and you read and you're like, all right, I like this horse, I don't like this horse, you know, and you you come up with it and then it wins. It's you're, you are. You're like, this is my moment. Like, <laughs> you get that every day. Yeah. She may look different than the everyday horse player, but among these puzzle solvers and risk takers, Emily Gullickson has finally found her place. Next time on Gamblers, we'll meet the poker player who couldn't be solved, Bill Galfond. This is the golden child who dominated and then left the game for a while. To me, it was, this is a great comeback story. Gamblers was written and reported by me, David Hill. The show was produced by Craig Horlbeck, Noah Malalay, and Isaac Lee. Matt Dollinger was our story editor. The sound design was done by Isaac Lee. 